Here is another powerful message from New Vision Baptist Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. To hear the rest of this series and others, join us at newvisionlife.com. We're going to finish up a series that we've entitled a, a Place for You because that's really what we hope New Vision is. It's a place for you and your family. But as we're thinking about that, <coughs> excuse me, one of the things that's important to understand is what are we really about? And I think periodically we need to come back as a church family and just say, here's who we are and here's what God's called us to be. And this is kind of how we do church here at New Vision. And throughout this series, we've been looking at uh, these components, our process of ministry. We, we sit here first base for us is, is worship. And you know what? There are things that happen inside this room as we gather to worship every single week that really prepare us for what happens out there. And I hope you've experienced that even this morning. Uh, we say second base for us here is when we gather in smaller groups inside a community. We're connecting with each other, and that is a big part of how we do church here at New Vision. And these are things that we're going to push the envelope on here. We just continue to stay after because we believe that life change happens inside uh, small groups of people. We believe third base is for, for you finding that unique giftedness, the way that God has wired you as a born-again believer to serve Him. And we want to equip you to find that way to serve the Lord. And then home plate for us is where we're going. We want to uh, be intentional about sharing the gospel. And that's something that uh, we're, we talked a little bit about last week, but we're going to talk about it some more this week. And I think it's something that we, we have to stay after because it's one of those things that we always sort of gravitate away from. And we, we talk about here at New Vision, our dream is very, very clearly this. Our dream is that every person here at New Vision would have at least one as-you-go relationship. And why do we say an as-you-go relationship? Because I really believe that's what Jesus was saying in his great commission. He said, as you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I'm with you even to the end of the age. So what would it be like? Think about this for a moment. What would it be like to be a part of a church where every single person had somebody in their life that they were praying for, loving, encouraging, and sharing the truth of who Jesus Christ was to them. That would be a great place. We would see a powerful movement of God, and I believe that's God's desire for His church. So today, my hope is uh, to encourage you and equip you a little bit at being a better witness for Christ, because I, I think it's really easy to, to, to load us up with a lot of guilt about maybe what we're not doing, but perhaps what we don't do as much is better equip us to do that. So we're going we're gonna to dive into that. If you have your notes, go ahead and take them out. We started this last week and didn't get very far. I was pretty ambitious. I had seven things I wanted to say to you last week. I got through two of them. And so we just went ahead and cut this down to five. I, so we just got three more. So I think we can do it today. Just to recap what we looked at last week, we said here's the, one of the reasons why we witness because there really is no plan B. You know, there's nobody waiting, warming up in the, in the bullpen that you are God's plan to take the gospel to your neighborhood and to the nations. And the second thing, why do we witness? Well, really, we're always witnessing. And I think we need to be aware of that. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're always witnessing. We're always representing the Lord Jesus, whether good or bad. That's why we saw last week. We're either gathering or scattering. And so with my attitude, with my actions, I'm a witness either positively or negatively for Jesus Christ. So the real question is, what kind of witness am I? That's the real question. And so I, I, I've, this is my fourth time to preach this message, so extend some grace to me, all right? I, I want to I I land this one time out of the four. 
I'm going for it. Thank you. Just give me a second. Give me a second. Give me a second. So if you you have to think about two of the probably most popular passages in in Scripture, uh, first of all, Jesus was asked this. He was asked, "What what is the greatest commandment? And he was asked that in a way to try to trick him, and Jesus gave the the great commandment. He said, the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what's called the great commandment. And you'd you'd be hard-pressed to find probably more important passage than that, right? And then maybe what's what's another really important? Well, I think it would be the great commission, what we just said just a few moments ago. Jesus tells his disciples to go and make disciples of, of all nations. So here's my point. Are you with me? the great commandment and the great commission, maybe two of the most important things that Christ said. Everything he said was important, but, but here's the thing. The great commandment really sets up the great commission. Can I say that to you again? The great commandment sets up the great commission. If I am not loving my neighbor as myself, if I'm not, first of all, loving God supremely and loving my neighbor as myself, I'm not going to be very effective in the great commission. And, and so, what, what are we talking about? What kind of witness am I? Am I somebody that is really loving folks as Christ has loved me? I loved what, what, what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. It's one of, my, one of my favorite passages. And the apostle Paul was such an effective missionary, and, and I want my life to count for something. Don't, don't you eternally? And so I want to I get better. And so a lot of times I look and say, hey, what, what, what's, the, what's the secret sauce? And, and, and Daniel reminded us today, it's the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. I, I get that. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, writing to this church at Thessalonica. I learned it this way as a kid, memorizing this passage. He said, we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you the gospel of God in our lives as well. You see, those things have to be in balance. And, and I don't know if this is for anybody else, but so many people that I've met in my past, I, I've been in church all my life. I've met all different stripes of people in church. I've met a lot of people who knew a lot about the, the Bible, I just didn't think they cared a whole lot about me. You ever been around somebody like that? I always felt like they were kind of looking for another notch on their belt than really loving me and caring for me. And Paul says to this church, he said, we, 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 we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you the gospel and our lives as well. I mean, that, that's really a secret. So what kind of witness am I? Am I somebody that's really caring for and loving those po- folks that God has placed in my life? That creates fertile soil for the Great Commission. Now, let's look at the third thing. We didn't, we didn't get to this last week. We witness because good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. Now, that doesn't go over very well in this, this culture. And, and, and here's, I, I want to press into this just, just a little bit. I, I keep the scales of justice. You've seen the scales of justice. I keep a set of the scales of justice in my office. And, and why do I do that? Because a lot of times as I'm, I'm sitting down with people and talking to people about the gospel, I'll bring out the scales of justice because most people logically, here's what they believe about how to get to God, that someday they were, they're going to stand before God and God's going to bring out this cosmic scale of justice and all their good stuff's going to go on one side and all their bad stuff's going to go on the other and whichever ways out, that's going to determine their, their eternity. That's how most people think. And frankly, that's how most people in the church think. Most people in the church today, if you look at the statistics that bear, bear it out, most people in the church today are, are practical universalists. They really believe, you know, it doesn't matter what a person believes, as long as they're sincere in it, it doesn't matter what they believe, as long as they're a good person at their core, then that will determine their eternity. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that at all. In fact, the Bible teaches something just exactly opposite of that. 
Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. So let me ask you a question just to wrestle with for 15 seconds, okay? Is that fair? Is a person saved by their merits or by the merits of another? Let me ask it to you again. Think about that. Is a person saved by their merits, their efforts, their works, or by the merits of another? Another. Would you agree with that? I, I, agree. I believe that's what Scripture teaches. I'm not saved by my own efforts or my own merits. I'm saved by the merits of another. And sometimes people will say, well, that, that's my problem with Christianity. Christianity is just too easy. Just believing in what Jesus did, that's just too easy. No, it's not. To be honest with you, I think it's one of the most difficult things in the world because most people I know don't want to trust what somebody else has done for their eternity. They want to trust what they have done. And it is a very difficult thing in any person's life to put their entire eternity in the hands of another. But that's what the gospel teaches. Let me ask you another question. And this is all under this, this topic. Why do we witness? Because good people don't go to heaven, but forgiven people do. In the balcony, let me, let me ask you this. You guys can listen down here too if you want. <laughs> I say that because folks email me or call me and say, we sit in the balcony, you never look at us. <laughs> Here's the question up there. If people could get to God on their own, why the cross? That's very confusing for me. Right? If, 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 if a human being could get to God on their own, somebody needs to explain to me why God allowed what he did through the crucifixion of his son. I don't get that unless the Bible's right. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. If you have your Bibles, let's get Romans chapter 10. If you go ahead and take them out and if you're single and you're sitting beside a lady, it's a good chance if you didn't bring your Bible, just look over. She's got hers. Great chance to meet people, right? Make sure she's not with another dude on the other side that's bigger than you. That could go south, right? Like really bad. Seriously, bro, I didn't bring my Bibles. Just looking on with your girlfriend. It's good. I bet you'll bring it next week. <laughs> Romans chapter 10. And why are we reading this passage? Because I want to push into this concept, and, and, and maybe you're starting to track with me. See, I think one of the reasons why there's not a lot of passion for evangelism in our churches today is because we don't really see the need for it. We really think, you know what, good people go to heaven. As long as a person believes what they believe and they're sincere in what they believe, I mean, who am I to, to, to tell them any different? What I want to show you is the Bible teaches something drastically different. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter, chapter 10. Now, if, you've, if you're new to Bible study, uh, Romans is Paul's letter to the church at Rome. I mean, this is after Jesus has been, he's lived, he's been crucified and ascended into heaven. And the Apostle Paul was a Jew who was persecuting the first Christians. And then he was saved just radically. And now he is this great missionary and defender of the faith. And so Romans is his, uh, it's his theology. It's his understanding of God. And, and listen to what he says in Romans chapter 10. He says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Now, that might not really sink in too deep, but here's the thing. Paul was a Jew, but now he'd converted to Christianity, and it, would, it, were, it was the Jews that were persecuting him, and ultimately it would cause him his life. But he says, it is my desire, I desperately desire to see these folks 
come to faith in Christ. And he's, he's praying for them. Just real simple. If you want to make a greater impact, impact evangelistically, let me give you one thing you do that will make a difference. You start praying for lost people. That's what Paul's doing. All right, you're thinking, wow, you are, that's profound. But it's true, you see, because we don't do it very much. How long has it been since you've really labored any length of time for somebody in your life who's living apart from Jesus Christ? You start praying for people, you'll see God move in your life, I promise you. And so he says, it's my desire to see them saved. In chapter 9, the previous chapter, Paul says, and I'm summarizing, he says, I would give up my salvation. I, I, would, I would endure eternity separated from God if somehow that my people could be born again. So what, what are we learning from this? And I'm not telling you you have to do that because I'm not where Paul is. I want to be honest. I'm like, whoa, dude, I'm not there yet. But how passionate are we to see lost people come to faith in Christ? Paul was definitely very passionate. He was willing to give up his salvation so that others might be saved. Now look at verse 2. This is very interesting. Look at what Paul says. He says, For I can testify about them, the Jews, that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on what? Help me. Knowledge. That's interesting. Keep that up for just a second longer. I testify about them. They're zealous for God. They're passionate about God, but their passion for God is not based on knowledge. In other words, what they believe about him is not fully true. And that is, that is so true for us today. But, but where we are in our culture, if a person is, is passionate or zealous about something, then, then they're good. Now listen to verse 3. This is amazing. He says, since they did not know the righteousness of God, Paul is going to say, here's, here's, they're living in ignorance about God, and, and here's where they're misled. First of all, they don't understand the righteousness of God. In other words, he's saying they don't understand the holiness of God. They don't truly understand his nature, that God is supremely holy and cannot be in sin. That's why he sent his son. That's what took place on the cross, that Jesus was satisfying the wrath of God because God cannot be in relationship with sin. But we live in a culture just like 2,000 years ago that most people just don't get that. They don't understand the holiness of God. And this is a very simplistic question, but I'll just ask it, and it's true. How many sins would it take to separate me from God? There's a clear answer to that. Do you know what it is? Just one, we don't think like that. So all of us are disqualified because of the holiness of God. And, the, and so it was the ignorance of the Jews, Paul says. First of all, they're, they, they, they're ignorant, and he, he uses that not in a way that they're just misinformed because they didn't understand the righteousness of God. Secondly, look at, look at this. They sought to establish their own righteousness. This has been the pattern of humanity from the very beginning. God, I don't need your righteousness. I will create my own righteousness. But you see, when you understand, when you understand the holiness of God, then the first thing that happens is you realize that all of my efforts are in vain. Listen, I could, I could attempt to live a righteous life for the rest of my days and attempt never to commit a sin, but I've already violated God's righteousness. Do you see that? And then lastly, he says, and they do not submit to God's righteousness. In other words, most people... It's not for lack of evidence that they don't yield to Christ. It is for the issue of authority. This is what bothers me probably more. When you, when you read many of the popular atheists or secular philosophers that want to bash Christianity, when you get back to the heart of the matter, it's not that they're rejecting Christianity because of a lack of evidence especially for you college students, but for anybody in the room, 
There is far and away enough evidence for Christianity to stand on its own. In fact, Paul says this in Romans chapter 1. Look around at creation. Creation screams one thing, creator. The next question is this, is, okay, so is Jesus God? Is Jesus Messiah? Let me give you one word, resurrection. Study in detail the resurrection. Great men and great women before us have done that. You study resurrection, you will find evidence after evidence of a bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. So my point is it's not for lack of evidence. It's just this. If there is a God, then I'm not him. And so I can't do what I want to do. If there is a God, then that means I have to submit to his authority. And Paul says that's most people's problem. They reject that authority. Now, look at, look at, verse, look at verse 4. He says, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Now, Let's talk about two things. First of all, here's the promise of God. Here's the great promise of God. And if you get nothing else today, I want you to hear this, that Paul has just laid out the case that you cannot achieve anything from God. We're already disqualified because of our sin, but we can receive a righteousness from God. Paul says this over and over again in Romans, and I have to be honest with you, this saved my sanity when I finally understood it. When I understood this, the moment that I put faith and trust in Christ for my standing with God, I received a righteousness. And when God views me today, listen, when God views me today, according to the Word of God, because of my faith and trust in Christ, He views me with the righteousness of His Son. Do I deserve that? No. That is why we're here today worshiping this God because of what He has done, that He has imparted this righteousness on us, right? It's powerful. But then he makes his statement. He says, Christ is the termination, the culmination, the end of the law. What does he mean? After this, we'll, we'll move on because I'm starting to lose you guys. Watch this. What does he mean when he says Christ is the end of the law? When he's talking about the law, let's think about the commandments. He says Christ is the end of the commandments. So, so what does that mean? First of all, here's what the law was always intended to do. This is very important. People, people would say this. Well, in the Old Testament, people, in the Old Testament, people were saved by the law. No. In the Old Testament, people were saved by faith. Abraham, Abraham was saved by faith. He was looking forward to the Messiah to come, right? So what's the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is to show us that we can't keep it. The purpose of the law is to show us that we need a Savior. Does that make sense? And that's what Paul says when he says Christ is the culmination, or he's what the law was pointing to. Now, how many of you have, have really obeyed the commandment not to covet? I, I mean, you guys have coveted. I've coveted my wife's team all weekend. She's an Alabama fan. I wish I was an Alabama fan. I wouldn't have to feel like a loser every weekend. Go Vols. I don't know where we're going. <laughs> I was doing a wedding yesterday. I went in. This is free. The score was a 10 to 7. After the wedding, it was like 87 to 7. What just happened here, Lord? Anyways, what were we talking about? Christ is the culmination of the law. I, I, know, I, know, what, uh, I know what the speed limit is on Thompson Lane. You do too. Most of you didn't obey it. The point is the law doesn't change us. Here's another thing I know about you guys. I hear from our parking people. They try to tell you certain places to turn and certain places to park and when to, and you don't even do that. So what's the, the culmination of the termination of the law? The law is to point us to this fact that we need a Savior because we cannot keep it. And so what does that point to? It points to Jesus who is the one who kept the law perfectly. That's what he's saying. Isn't that a beautiful picture? 
And then when he says Christ is the end of the law, he says we don't have to be under the law because you know what the law is? Some of you are under the law right now. Do you, you know what the law is? The law is a curse. If you're here today living apart from Christ, then you're under the law, the requirements of the law, and one sin has already separated you from God, so you're cursed. But the end of the law is Jesus Christ, so you don't have to be under the law anymore. When you submit to him, then you are now under grace and you receive a righteousness. So that's what he means when he says Christ is the end of the law. Here's my point. People might know there's a God. They just don't know how to get to him. Does that make sense? Most people I know know there's a God. They just don't know how to get to him. That's what Paul's saying about the Jews. They're zealous about God, but their zeal isn't based on knowledge, right? Helen Keller. You know the story of Helen Keller, a young woman who was born completely blind, completely deaf. She had a caretaker whose first name was Anne who cared deeply for Helen, and it wasn't enough for Anne just to feed Helen and clothe her. She wanted desperately to communicate with this young girl who could not hear and could not see. So she set out to teach her a common language, that they could have a common language. She would place objects in Helen's hand, and then with pressure points from Anne's finger onto Helen's hand, she would make different different symbols. She would let water pour over her hand, and then she would keep repeating that symbol for water so Helen knew how to communicate water. And so can you imagine the time it took for her to develop this language for Helen? One day she brought a minister in to talk with her about the gospel. And after several hours of him talking and Anne translating, And then ask her what she thought about what she just heard. And she said, oh, I've always known that he was there. I just never knew what to call him. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? Most people know that a God exists. They just don't know how to get to him. The problem inside the church is most of us believe that good people go to heaven and we stop short of explaining the truth of the gospel. Now, I want you to turn back one, one book of the Bible to Acts chapter 10. Where I'm going to let you go on time. Don't, you don't even have to go to work tomorrow. What are you worried about? It's a Labor Day weekend, man. It's good, isn't it? Acts chapter 10, because this is hard. This is contrary to the way we think, right? So I, I, want, to, I want to show you a story that is so fascinating to me that, that proves this point. Why do we witness? Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. There's a difference. Acts chapter 10, we're introduced to a man named Cornelius. He's living in Israel after the events of Christ have occurred and Jesus has ascended into heaven. It says at Caesarea, which is a city still today in Israel, there was a man named Cornelius. It says that he was a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. In other words, he was a bad dude in a tough way, right? He and all of his family were devout and God-fearing. So here's a guy who feared God. It says he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. I mean, from from that, we would read that and we would say, he's one of us, right? I mean, here's a guy who, he's he's a God-fearer. He fears God. I mean, he's generous with his money and he prays to God. Now, 
verse 3. Watch this. One day at about 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at the angel in fear and said, What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Verse 5. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter, one of the apostles who knew the story of Jesus. I got to stop and ask two questions. Here's the first question. Are you with me? Why didn't the angel just tell him about Jesus? Is that a fair, is that a fair question? Is that a legitimate question? I mean, he's talking to him. Why didn't he just tell him? You know why? Because that's our work. That's what God's called us to do. We'll explain that in greater detail in just a few moments. But the second question I have is, why does he need Simon Peter to come and tell him? This is a good dude. He's a God-fearer. He knows God. He just doesn't know the full message of how to get to God. Watch. So at the same time, you may want to go back and read Acts chapter 10 this afternoon. Simon Peter is on the other side of the country in a city called uh, Joppa. And so as he is, 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 is there, at about the same time, he has a vision from the Lord that sets the table that he is, some men are going to come and he's going to go to Cornelius. God is preparing him ahead of time for what he's going to do. Cornelius is a Gentile, which there were some issues that Simon Peter had to work through. God had to get him prepared for. So he is getting him ready. And so the men from Cornelius' house, this is not easy to say, come to Joppa, knock on the door, introduce themselves to Simon Peter. They get Simon Peter. Simon Peter goes, leaves Joppa, and goes back to Caesarea. All this is in Acts chapter 10. He gets there. Cornelius has a bunch of his family and friends there, and Simon Peter explains the truth of Jesus Christ to Cornelius, and his family is born again. Look at verse 43, Acts chapter 10, verse 43. This is how Simon Peter closes up his his message. He doesn't say, man, it's good to be here with you guys. You got it dialed in. Seems like you love God. You're generous to God. It's good to be around brothers. No, he explains the truth of the gospel to him. He says this in verse 43, all the prophets testify about him, about Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying, this is what everything in the Old Testament was pointing to, this coming Messiah, that everyone, listen, Cornelius, that everyone who believes in him receives. Isn't that a key word? Do you hear it? Receives versus what? Achieve. Our culture thinks I need to achieve something. I have to achieve something from God. You can't. You're disqualified. Do you understand that? That's why God sent his son who is righteous for you, but the The good news of the gospel is that you can receive it by faith. Do you see that? And he explains that clearly. Everyone who believes in him, trusts in him. And again, you might say, well, that's just so easy. Really? Really? Is it easy to trust completely in someone else's work? Everyone who trusts in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. He explains to him the truth of the gospel. Why did I share that story with you? Because if good people go to heaven, Cornelius' story doesn't make any sense to me at all. It doesn't. People can know there's a God. They just don't know how to get to him. Fourth thing, we're running out of time. Why do we witness? Because to follow Jesus is to fish. From the very beginning of the Jesus story, as Jesus calls his first disciples, one of the first things that he promises he's going to do in them is he's going to make them fishers of men. One of the last things he says to them in the Great Commission is that they're to go and make disciples of all nations. So so here is my point. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry to the end, 
one of the first things he says to his disciples and one of the last things he says, they're the same thing. He says, I want you to be involved in transforming lives of men, women, boys, and girls. Look at Luke chapter 5, verse 1. It's Labor Day. This is one of my favorite stories. I love this story. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee, people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats belonging to Simon. Simon's washing his nets like he's like, and, and, and fishermen like don't like people touching their stuff. I don't. Like if you go fishing with me, you get in my boat, I'm like, whoa, 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 go easy, right? Obviously, you don't know what you're doing. Don't step on my rods. You sit here. Be cool. He got into one of the boats belonging to Simon Peter and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered him, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. Basically what Simon Peter is saying is, Jesus, you don't know anything about fishing. Let me just go over the rules with you. It's the Sea of Galilee. We fish at night, not during the day. Nobody fishes during the day. The fish are very deep during the day. They come up shallow at night. I don't know if I need to go over this with you. And Jesus says, let down your nets for the catch. Well, because you said so, I will. I think he said it like Eeyore. He didn't want to. But because you say so, verse 6, when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. This is where the thing gets good, right? So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and filled both boats so full they began to sink. I, 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 have to, I, I just see Jesus on, on the bank here just, just laughing here. This is so funny. And, and, and let, me, let me be honest with you. Can I tell you what the Lord wants to do in your life? I know you don't understand this, many of you. He wants to bring fullness to your life. I know when you think about Christ, when you think about following Jesus, fully submitting to Jesus, you think about all the things you've heard from your past that you can't do and it's very limited. Let me tell you something. He wants to bring fullness. But in order for you to experience the fullness that he wants to bring in your life, you got to get in on his agenda. You want to see the fullness, you got to get in on his agenda. What is his agenda? Well, he's about to tell us. When Simon Peter, he saw this, he, he fell at Jesus' his knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. He's in the presence, not of a rabbi, but of the long-awaited Messiah, God in the flesh. For he and all of his uh, uh, companions were astonished. I bet they were at the catch of fish they had, had taken. Verse 10, watch this. So were James and John, the sons of Zebedee. It means the sons of thunder. These were dudes, right? I mean, if you're, called, you're not called the sons of thunder if you're just kind of, you know, wimpy little guy, right? I mean, the sons of thunder, you bring it, right? They're just going nuts. Simon Peter's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to fish for people. Matthew's gospel says it this way. From now on, I will make you a fisher of men. Can I tell you something today? Will you lean into this? This was Jesus's agenda for his first disciples and it is his agenda for you today. Let me tell you, what is God's agenda for your life? Most people inside the church think, well, well, God's agenda for me is to make me wiser so I can make better decisions. God's agenda for me is to make me a better husband so I can love my wife more. God, and these are all good. God's agenda for me is to make me a better per parent. And on and on. God's agenda for me is to make me more successful in the business world. And on and on and on. All those are good things. But let me tell you God's core agenda for you. It was the first thing he said to his disciples, and it would be the last thing he was telling to his disciples. I want to make you fishers of men. I want to give you an opportunity to trade in the temporal and be involved in the eternal.
And on that day, Simon Peter, the sons of thunder, it says that they left everything, which was the largest catch of fish they had ever hauled in. Their nets, their boats, their livelihood, they left it and followed him. I think their dads are on the bank going, saying, go with him. Follow the dude in the robe and sandals. He knows what he's doing, right? I'll take care of this here. I got it, right? But here's the difference. These guys got it. They were willing to drop their nets. They were willing to drop their nets and they experienced what Jesus promised them. Now, what does it mean? What does it mean to be willing to drop our nets? What does it mean to be fishing for men? It means trading the temporal for the eternal. That's what it means. It means being willing in your life, in my life, in ever-increasing measure to be willing to trade the temporal for the eternal. It means to start leveraging a couple things in your life. And I think the first thing that God wants me to leverage and you to leverage, if you want to get in on his agenda for you, and I know there's a lot of fear, right? There's a lot of fear on that. Can we go back to Cornelius for just a moment? Because I forgot to tell you this, but this is really important. You will never share Christ with anybody that God isn't already there working in their life. Do you see? that? Isn't that pretty cool? I mean, Simon Peter rolls up at Cornelius' house, and guess who already beat him there? Yeah, the Lord was already there at work. I hear people say this, man, where's God working today? I want to be involved in a movement of God. You start to engage people that God lays on your heart that do not know Christ with the truth of who Christ is, and let me tell you something, you'll get in on what God's doing. You'll see him. You'll experience him. That's where the supernatural is. That's where the good stuff is. That's what God's agenda is. To follow him is to fish. Now, so what does it mean for me today to be willing to drop my nets? I don't get that. What are you talking about, man? That's what you're saying. Well, I think it means to start to leverage some things, to leverage your, to leverage your time, to leverage a little bit of your time. Think about most of what we spent all of our time or most of our time on in this past week. Think about it. It wasn't that it was all bad. It's just that it was all temporary. We are busy people, but we give ourselves to so many things that won't matter in 100 years. And so dropping your nets for starters means, Lord, I'm going to leverage some of my time for eternal purposes. What would that look like in your life? The second thing I would say is start to leverage your resources. Now, relax. Some of you are like, oh, no, here comes the money talk. We've already taken up the offering. We're not taking another. We're not getting any more of your, right? You see that? By the way, do you know that last month in August, over 50 people were baptized here at New Vision in August? If you get, and you say, well, why are you telling me that? If you gave a dime here, you invested in some eternity-making different stuff. That's pretty cool, isn't it? But, yeah, nobody wants to clap there. I get that because you know where it's headed. Investing our resources. God, I have a little bit of resources, and I want to invest my resources in what lasts forever. And so that's what it means. Start leveraging my time for eternal purposes. Start, start leveraging my resources for eternal purposes. Most evangelical Christians spend more on pet care than they do on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And listen, uh, what you do with the gospel reveals what you believe about the gospel. Do you see that? So what does it mean to drop our nets? Well, I'm leveraging my time now for eternal purposes. I'm going to open my home up a night a week to teach the Bible, to invite some friends to come and, and, and hear more about Jesus Christ. 
I'd be willing to put my, a portion of my resources, give that first so that that could be taken and be used to, to share the gospel in our neighborhood and around the, the world. That, that, that's part of it. What about your relationships? What Would you be willing to leverage some of your relationships? Look at this last story, and then we'll, then we'll go. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I just love it. Jesus is picking his team. You see Peter, James, and John. He's already got those guys. Then he goes to a tax collector's booth. In Luke chapter 5, Luke tells us this story, verse 27. Now, why, why a tax collector? We're going to be introduced to Matthew. If you were a tax collector in Jesus' day, you were a Jew who was sold out to the Romans. You were extorting your friends for your own gain and for the Roman Empire. Not a real enviable position. After this, Jesus went and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi. This is Matthew. He'd write the first book in the New Testament, by the way, sitting at the tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said. Can I tell some of you this today? Matthew's story, it may impact you. You're, you're like, you know what? All this stuff, like leveraging temporary for the eternal to be, to, to be used to make a difference in somebody else's life, like that's good, and I, but I have disqualified myself. Man, I've made so many mistakes. I've got such a checkered past. God could never use me. One of the 12 disciples was a dude by the name of Matthew. He was a con artist. That's what he did for a living. And Jesus transformed him and used him in a powerful way, and he wants to use you. Why don't you leave your excuses on the shore, and let's get on with this thing. Do you see it? Jesus said, follow me, and I'll make you a fisherman. Now, now watch this. Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Look at verse 29. I love this. Verse 29. Look what he does immediately. He doesn't go to seminary. He throws a party. Like some of you are like, party? Whoa, okay. I'm in. Here's Matthew. He said, I don't know a whole lot, but this guy changed my life. I got a lot of friends. So he says he throws a banquet for Jesus at his house. This is like the ultimate bait and switch. I mean, Levi's got all his boys. They're over. He's having a good time. He says, hey, by the way, guys, I want to to introduce you to a new friend. Come on out. Invites Jesus out. Drops a little Jesus on him. He, he, He throws a party for a purpose. What did he do? He leveraged his relationships for eternal good. Do you see that? You know what we call it around here? Investing and inviting. That's what you can do. That's part of dropping your nets. Last week, I'm standing up in the baptistry. I'm getting a chance to baptize this high school student, and, and I just want to hear their story. And the mom begins to speak, and she said, we were going through a rough patch in our life. And she said, one of your church members invited us to church. We've been coming for about six months, and since we've been here, he's decided to follow Christ, and God's doing a work in our life. And she says, we're, sta- we're standing right up there. She said, we're standing here today because one person invited See, that's part of what it means to drop your nets. Invest and invite. Leverage your relationships. And then lastly, realize the power of your story. If God has transformed you, if you've been moved from death to life, you have a story. I want to close today out this way. You're going to think it's a little weird, but I'm losing you guys, so I need you to, need you to do something. Give me 30 seconds. If you're here today, I'm asking. If you're here today, and you would identify yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. You've trusted in him and him alone for your standing with God. I'd like you to stand to your feet right now across this room if that's you. I understand if you're not a follower of Christ, you're still standing probably right now because you don't want to be seated. I get that. That would be weird. But it's okay. Hang with me. And and, and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying because you're standing, you're, you're in. That's all it takes. No, that's not what I'm saying, right? You with me? Here's what I am saying. I want to talk to those of you who are here today right now who are standing. 
who have trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord, let me tell you something about you. Let me tell you something that you have. You have a story. When a man or a woman goes from death to life, you know what they have? A story. And the most powerful tool that you have in your arsenal is to tell this story. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. And so how would you even begin to tell your story? You give me 15 seconds. Here's an outline. Three things. What was one thing that dominated your life prior to Christ? For me, it was fear. What was the trigger event? Point number two, what was the trigger event that pointed you to faith and trust in Jesus Christ? For me, it was an eight-year-old boy in my grandmother's den, and she shared the truth of who Jesus Christ was and what he could do in my life and what is one thing God is doing in your life right now. I'm aware of his presence. He is changing my understanding of who I am. Listen, that's the skeleton. What was it like before? What was that trigger event? What's it like now? Start to flesh that out. Dropping your nets means I'm not ashamed of my story. I'm going to leverage my story for eternal good. God could use it. You know, sometimes people will call and say, hey, I got a neighbor that... uh, I think he's lost. Would you mind coming over and talking to him? You know what I say? No, I'm not coming. It freaks people out at first. Well, you're a pastor. You're a professional. That's why I'm not coming. They say, what what do you mean? Because they'd rather listen to you than me. They expect me to say spiritual stuff. You got an advantage. Do you understand the people that God has placed in your life? You got an advantage. Leverage your story. It's part of dropping your nets and watch what God will do. Let's close with this. Remember elementary school, show and tell? Like you'd bring something that was really cool and you get to show it to your class and you get to tell about it. I did, they did that at my school. Did they not do that at your school? Whatever. Here's what I hear people say. Well, you know what all this, that's good, 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 good message today, uh, preacher. Thank you for that. But I just show people I love Jesus. That's how I do that. Well, here's a quote from St. Francis of Assisi. First time I heard it, I just thought he was a dude with a funny name. We'll put the quote up. St. Francis of you got it, St. Francis of Assisi. It says, St. Francis of Assisi is, is, is known for making this statement, preach the gospel at all times and use words as necess- if necessary. People love that quote. The problem is he didn't say it. He didn't say that. What we know about St. Francis is just the opposite. He wasn't just a person who showed Jesus with his life. He showed Jesus with his life, and he told people about Jesus with his lips. Let me show you another picture. Here's an artist uh, rendering of St. Francis. He's bald, cool cut, like it. But a lot of pictures about St. Francis are with him with the, the, the birds around him. Why is that? Because they said that he would preach the gospel to anyone, even to the birds. He, he, was, he was known for, in his day, going to the most elaborate parties of his day and interrupting the party and sharing the truth of who Jesus Christ was. Now, I'm, I'm not telling you you've got to go to do that. I'm just saying here was a guy who was bold in his faith, and if the birds would be still, he'd tell them about Jesus. But do you see that quote that people give him? We love that. He said, you know what, well, I, you know what? I, I, can just, I, can just, I can just do that with my life. I just preach Jesus with my life, and we ought to be doing that. We're doing that all the time. Here's the only problem with that. If people look at your life close enough, you know what, you're walking obedience maybe before them, and they say, you know what, if they're doing it, how come I can't? I can do that. They don't know the secret to your success. The secret to your success is Christ alive within you, and they don't know that unless we share that. Lastly, we witness because the situation is urgent, and the verdict is final. There is no do-over. If you're here today within the sound of my voice and you reject Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, you can do that. 
you've got an excuse for doing that, you can do that. You'll never run out of excuses. We say it all the time, but you will run out of time, and there is a forever too late. That's why we share the gospel. Father, thank you for this moment in time. Father, thank you for just a reminder that there is no plan B. You've called us to go and take the gospel to our world. Father, you reminded us that we're always witnessing. Father, help us to love well. Father, your word teaches us that good people don't go to heaven, forgiven people do. And God, people can know that you exist. They just don't know how to get to you. God, help us to be courageous. Father, today, remind us that the situation is urgent and the verdict is final. And Father, we would be willing to get involved in your agenda for us. Would you make us men and women who are fishers of men that are willing to drop our nets and leverage the temporal to be involved in the eternal? Would you do that here in this place for your glory? I pray for these college students to my right that we would see a revival on this campus, that there would be young people who would leverage their time, their relationships for eternal purposes, and we would see you move in unprecedented ways for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed this message, we'd like to invite you to one of our Sunday morning services. We meet at 820, 940, and 11 a.m. If you would like more information or would like to watch or listen to more of our services, please visit us online at newvisionlive.com. This broadcast is brought to you by New Vision Baptist Church, where our mission is guiding people to lives of gospel transformation.